are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are back with another fantastic episode. We have Dr. Mitika Kanabar joining us to discuss process addictions. Dr. Kanabar is board certified in addiction medicine, family medicine, and lifestyle medicine. We are talking about gambling and gaming addiction and internet use. We're going to discuss the prevalence of these disorders, how to identify them, and some treatment options. Uh, Mitika, it's so great to have you on the show. We're really grateful. We're honored, actually, because we know you're very busy and you have lots of speaking engagements. It was an honor to do a workshop with you. We did a workshop together on lifestyle medicine. You're also board certified in lifestyle medicine and family medicine, and we did a workshop together. You, So we're really grateful to have you. This is a, such an important topic. It's very interesting for not only medical professionals and learners and addiction medicine and psychiatry providers, but I think the general public is interested in this because it affects so many of us, either personally or we're concerned about our children, our families, and then of course our patients are vulnerable to these kinds of addictions because of the same vulnerabilities that they have um, for substance use disorders. So we're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. And please, let's get started and start talking about process addictions and and what is it all about and and give us a background. Thank you for the warm introduction, Dr. Peterson and Dr. Cook. Very, very glad to be here today on the Addiction Files podcast. But regardless, it's it's amazing that you take the time out of your busy schedule schedules and just provide the service for people. Uh, so what are process addictions about? So process addictions are this other category for addiction, which means it's a non-substance addiction. Generally, we think of addiction as, oh, I'm, you know, I have a problem with alcohol or smoking and we associate it with a substance. But when it is sort of like an algorithm or set of behaviors you go through and you go through them almost compulsively. Those are called as process addictions. So now what are some process addictions? It could be gambling and gambling can be either in person or online. They have different features. Um, Most popular everybody knows about is gaming. Everybody wants to know how do we get our kids off their gaming consoles and is that a big problem? Uh, Problematic internet use uh, and sexual behaviors that can be problematic, and then buying or shopping behaviors that can also be of concern. You said something really interesting about it's a set of behaviors that have a compulsive algorithm. Is that what you said? That is such a good definition. I've never heard it that way, but that is so true. And I want to ask you this question, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with it, but how does that differ from the kinds of compulsive behavior that people with OCD have, where they have the set of behaviors and compulsive um, acting out uh, in order to relieve anxiety? And is there any similarity? There's a lot of similarity between the two. And sometimes even the medications that we use are similar. So conceptually, they can be seen very close together. OCD per se will be affecting your life much differently than a process addiction would be. So I would have to take like an inventory uh, of whom I'm talking to, how it is affecting your life. And is this uh, rooted into something? I want uh, relief from anxiety. I'm staying up till three in the morning cleaning my house. That's very different from 
I get this dopamine rush from gaming and it's helping me cope with feelings of loneliness or other things that are going on. And that's something that we saw really emerge in the, during the pandemic, which is, uh, you know, kids were online because they could talk to each other on their headsets and then it kind of got out of hand. Do we have data, like the Monitoring the Future study obviously collects data on substance use in youth and young adults. Do we have any data collection on process addictions? Not for, not in general. Although, you know, WHO has been doing this more worldwide. So there are other countries in the world that are looking into it, namely China, Italy, Switzerland, a little bit of um, some specialized clinics in India as well. But do we have population health data? Not particularly. Data that we have is from the industry, so gaming industry, because that is important for their uh, business model, right? So they want people to use these services, but only in, in a certain spectrum. That's really interesting. So of course, they're interested in the data because it serves their bottom line, I guess. So what's the, t- tell us a little bit more about, so you've mentioned several process addictions that are fairly common. I don't know if it's limited to those, but do you want to talk about gambling disorder first? So gambling disorder is the one that's uh, present in the DSM-5. So it has been recognized uh, and nationally as well as internationally. And data does exist about that. So about 1% of the population of U.S. has a severe problem with gambling. The criteria is slightly different from your usual DSM-5 criteria in that, you know, you're looking for a 12-month period um, and you're looking at more than um, four to five criteria to meet a category of mild, which uh, for substance use would be two to three criteria. So that's slightly different. What's interesting about gambling disorder is that there are lots of uh, bodies available. So for example, the International Center for Responsible Gaming has these resources available online that you can Google and get help with. About global gambling losses during like the COVID-19 annually were about 400 billion. So that's a lot of money that is getting spent. Um, It's amazing amount of money. Yes, 400 billion reasons to make gambling even more addictive, so to speak. There's a higher risk for developing problematic gambling when patients have mood disorders, personality disorders. And interestingly enough, there's this association with cannabis use. So, for example, a lot of uh, patients... That is really interesting. Yes. So I think uh, with both gaming and gambling, substance use disorder does go slightly hand in hand. So, or rather, I would say problematic use of substances because it may or may not meet criteria for a for a proper substance use disorder, but it's something that goes with. So for example, when you talk about alcohol, a lot of patients will tell you, oh, smoking just goes with it. Similarly, when people talk about gambling or gaming, or sometimes gaming also has these gambling uh, features in it, cannabis or alcohol or any other substance will just go with it. So it's, uh, it's very important to ask about other substance use. Do you typically see chicken and egg situation where people use substances first and then they develop, you know, fall into a process addiction like gambling or gaming? Or is it the opposite or do, are they just concurrent or do we know? We don't know. Generally, when somebody is coming to me with the data available for that is limited, I would say it's concurrent as far as I can see clinically. Do I have studies to tell me one way or the other? No. I definitely have seen that, though. I've had patients who are in recovery from alcohol and then they seem to develop 
like a gambling disorder. It seems like, is, is it just a seeking behavior or is it coming from the mood disorders? Because so many of our patients also with addiction disorders also have concurrent mood disorders. So it does seem to be very muddy, like what you're seeing. Like, I, I think that's why it's really hard to tease this out. But they seem to go, their one addiction seems to get a little better. And then, wow, they bloom into this gambling disorder and then kind of get that under control. And then they seem to start having cravings again. Yeah, I think yeah, even if you're not seeing gambling per se, when a person is in recovery, be it from meth or alcohol, you may see definitely shopping issues. You can ask somebody like, how much debt yes. are you in? And they might just say, oh, well, I'm in debt, but isn't everybody? And that's a very interesting conversation to have. And it's up to you how comfortable you feel in talking about these things. You know, a lot of us are not the best financial planners out there anyway. So we have to understand what is it that's interesting. And then if you ask them more, okay, how did it get into so much debt? And then you will uh, learn more things about shopping behavior online and how that is so conducive. At the end of the day, it's just dopamine seeking. Dopamine seeking. So with gambling, obviously, we also know, you know, the concept of the intermittent reward. Do you want to talk about that? I think that's really important to review, especially for people who are just beginning to learn about addiction medicine and the neurobiology of gambling and addiction in general. Yeah. So in general, uh, whether it is gambling, gaming, or even social media, uh, what happens, the variable reward is very important. So it's basically the concept of I'm sitting at, uh, let's say, one of those video poker slot machines at a casino. Every time I put in a quarter, it probably will give me two sevens and not the triple seven. And I'll keep putting more quarters in because in between it will give me, you know, maybe five cents back or 10 cents back. It will not give me the whole money back but I think I'm getting something and then a few times well, I'll get nothing. So you are always seeking big payoff. And at some point it changes from seeking that big payoff to just wanting to recoup your losses. So both of these ideas that I want to recoup my losses is also very important. And I want to get a jackpot is also very important. And that keeps you continuing that behavior. That's really interesting. And that's where a lot of people end up. It's, it's very analogous, isn't it, to when people start using initially substances, it's very rewarding. It's just innately rewarding. But the longer you use with tolerance and withdrawal, you're just using to not feel sick. So I wonder if that has a, um, it's a similar thing with recouping losses. Like you're just trying to catch up and, and stay at neutral almost, as opposed to getting the big reward. It could be viewed either ways. I would say recouping losses probably is even more stronger. Really? Yeah. What do you think that's about? Is that just, it's just all again about dopamine reward system or? It's, it's complex. I, you know, it's, it's more of like, I'm, it's sort of also fear based, right? I'm already in debt for so much, or I've already spent so much money. I, it's kind of fight, fight or flight sort of response. Like I need to get this money back somehow. Interesting. And so what are, what are the, you said you have to meet four to five of the DSM criteria in order to meet the disorder definition. What are the criteria and how do they differ? Well, what are the criteria? I guess we'll just go with that rather than talking about the difference between substance use disorder criteria. Very, very similar. So I'll read some of them. Increased amount of money gambled for desired excitement, cutting down causes restlessness and irritability, 
repeated unsuccessful efforts to cut back or stop, preoccupied with thoughts of gambling, gambles when feeling distressed, chases losses, comes back despite losing money, lies to conceal the extent of involvement with the gambling, has had consequences, whether they are job or relationship loss, but again, used despite consequences, relies on others for money or covering financial situations. For example, I spent so much that I don't have money for rent. Can you please help me? So uh-huh. mild, dis- yeah, mild disorder is uh, four to five, moderate is six to seven, and severe is eight to nine criteria. And again, this has to be present um, in a 12-month period. Amazing. So increased amount of money gambled. So you got like no longer is a small bet or a small amount at stake enough. You have to keep increasing the reward. Yes, very similar to like the tolerance criteria. And I think what, what one of the criteria that stuck out to me is preoc- uh, um, gambling, gambles when feels distressed. That's interesting because we know that people, well, all of us, we, we have... Um, unhealthy and healthy, hopefully coping mechanisms, and and folks who maybe have a substance use disorder are much more likely to report using their substance when they're distressed or when they're feeling anything along the extreme of the emotional spectrum. Right, either very happy and elated, or distressed, anxious, tired, depressed. And I didn't think it would be the same for gambling. You always think of it more of like a recreational thing. But once it gets to this level, it's it's compulsive, like you said. Yeah, and you know, I've read certain books about the way casinos were set up back in the 80s versus how the casinos are set up now. So it's like, it's an immersive experience, especially when you're going in person. So, you know, you will notice that even the... And a lot, most of the, I think, gambling happens in these um, rows of um, these games and they are, you know, they are put curved. They have this surround sound experience. You feel like there's nobody around you. It's you and this beautiful display. And so you can, you can kind of visualize how that could be less distressing than whatever fears or uh, other issues that are going on. In life, like, you know, if, if I go and say I decide I want to gamble $10 at Bellagio at Las Vegas, let's say, since we are creating this hypothetical scenario and I want to go to a slot machine, I don't want to go sit at that table where they are charging $50 minimum bet because I don't know how to gamble. So I just have to go put some money and sometimes it's electronic money doesn't even feel like real cash and i'm sitting there it's it's almost like consoling me like wow you know this you got you put in 50 cents and look at how how many cents you got back 15 cents and you have all of this victory music playing and it's just this whole environment that's so interesting. so the ultimate distraction from what's really going on in your life yeah. Well, I have a question actually, because I had a patient who I was treating him for opioid use disorder and he was actually doing quite well in that regard. And he would denied any other kind of addiction, even though I probed for a gambling addiction because I was getting collateral information from his family that he had a gambling problem. But they didn't know he they he didn't know they were telling me about the problem. And I didn't, it was very awkward because I would try and ask him leading questions. And other than just coming out with saying, listen, your family tells me you're gambling, I didn't really know how to question or get to that history. Do you have any tips for that before we talk about treatment? It's interesting that you have a nice family giving you collateral. So if you don't generally see that, I would just, my, my style is just asking about that. And it's okay to ask uh, like an obvious question. Why not? Because then it might just be like, oh, I have to put up this image or, you know, this is what the doctor expects of me. And we all have that nice guy, nice girl built into that, right? So it's okay. 
you can ask like what how are you doing with your finances i hear there are some concerns so when did you last go gambling like you could just ask something like that I, it doesn't we just have to start the conversation somewhere sometimes i've used the approach is why would your family member be concerned about this and do and can we talk about this and just ask their permission yeah right. that sounds like a great idea darling it totally does absolutely so what about treatment so treatment is where um, kind of gets complicated right it's not so many centers out there maybe you get treatment privately um, it's hard to get insurance to cover uh, it would start with just plain simple motivational interviewing there are 12-step programs available. So gambling is kind of better placed than other process addictions in that because it is recognized as a, as a you know, ICD code for it um, that you can actually bill for this as a service, which is not present for the others that is in ICD-11 and we haven't yet adopted ICD-11. The other part is that you need to have teams, therapy teams that are comfortable dealing with this. So you might have to go to a specialized uh, gambling center such as UCLA to get the resources that you need. In the community, you have uh, Gamblers Anonymous, you have Debtors Anonymous, and both of these can help you. And Debtors Anonymous is this fantastic resource where your sponsor like literally helps you plan out an Excel sheet for your spending and you get really good advice with that. That's that's excellent. And then um, so kind of starting with motivational interviewing, referring to national sources of excellence, and then, of course, the forever solid 12-step programming around gambling. And that, I didn't know about Debt is Anonymous. I knew about GA, but not Debt is Anonymous. That's a great resource. Thank you. Yeah, they are also not easily found. So like sometimes patients have to drive a little bit, but it's worth the effort. I also want to make a note that medication-wise, you would try to treat the underlying depression, anxiety. You might have to go to higher doses than you would normally need. And then there is some emerging evidence that naltrexone, uh, nalmefine, both are helpful. Some resources for people to look at, those who are interested or struggling, look at what the UK is doing. They're doing a lot of policy work. There are some nonprofits such as Gambling With Lives, where because you know gambling is such a uh, almost entrenched problem over there, unfortunately, causes is associated with uh, suicidality and it's very, very dangerous. And um, there's a lot of activism, a lot of uh, work going on over there. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you brought up the association between gambling and suicidality because that's a very important risk factor that we need to know in both directions, right? That's really important to ask and, and make sure that we're always assessing people's safety. And because it's a problem of impulsivity and compulsivity, much like substance use disorder, that in and of itself raises people's risk for uh, suicidality and completion of suicide. So got to take it very seriously. Yeah, very sad. So what about, um, how does this relate to gaming disorder and what we're seeing now as a more, as a new, we were talking about millennials before we went on to record, but the new newer generations and maybe not even the younger generations, it's affecting older people as well. But what's going on with gaming and how does gaming disorders or addiction just differ from internet addiction? You're asking me all my favorite questions. Thank you. <laughs> 
Oh, you're welcome. We could ask questions all night. <laughs> so as far as gaming is concerned, the average gamer, when we think about it, is like in, in our minds is this teen who's in their parents' basement gaming the night away, right? Probably male, probably 17 or 18. But when these gaming folks, which for whom the bottom line depends on you know, people using their games, they do the statistical work. It's somebody in their 30s, male as well as females. In fact, females were gaming faster during the COVID-19 pandemic because of the lockdowns. Quite interesting. And yes, they are the elder millennials, so to speak, and not so much the Gen Y. Uh, it may change, you know, these things change all the time. Uh, and uh, how does it differ? You know, unfortunately, they are becoming very close now. So gaming can be video gaming or, you know, multiplayer online gaming. Essentially, you are in this other universe uh, where you have a persona, you have all of these people you're collaborating with. Those are definitely way more addictive than the good old PC games. Now, having played PC games all my life, like I could spend my weeks, months, years away and I have to you know, rein it in a little bit. But uh, apparently the multiplayer games are better and also more dopaminergic, more addictive. Why are they more addictive? Why is there more dopamine in these newer type of games than what we grew up with? <laughs> because it, for two things. First of all, it's a multiplayer. So it's not just this idea that I'm playing this game, but we are all playing this game together. The interaction. Yeah, the interaction was very interesting. So it's also sort of similar to social media. If you, you want to create this game where all of us are doing this one thing together, you may or may not get these friends. You are looking for these. And also it's like this variable reward, right? You might like this person with this avatar. God only knows who this person is behind that avatar but and do i have enough cloud and they have this concept of whales so whales are these people who have a lot of points they have a lot of changes or avatar changes available so like different costumes that they can dress in fig uh, not figuratively not literally and these are the people who are spending the most amount of money so they they are the people who the game is also sending more boxes so what are these boxes boxes or loot boxes are where it becomes very much like gambling so if you are in real life, your reality might be something else. You might be in a very unfortunate situation, but when you are online, you are who whoever you want to be. You're you're the big whale, so <laughs> that's what it is. Okay. Yes, and so uh, even they, you know, you may or may not be able to afford. Unfortunately, people with mood disorders become more prone to be becoming whales, or they, that's attractive to them. This is where you know they are not depressed, they are not anxious, they are something different. And whale means, okay, I'm spending a lot of money. So, you know, there are two kinds of rewards. So gaming uses all kinds of rewards. They do fixed rewards and they do valuable rewards. So like if you check into a game and 10 days in a row, 20 days in a row, 30 days in a row, your uh, feedback or the number of points or coins you gain remains. And then if you miss a day and then you go back the day after, then you go back to day one. So that accruing schedule does not happen. So it becomes this habituation sort of response. Like if, if I do nothing today, even if I don't want to play this game, I will at least check in to get those two points, whatever those two points are. Are they relevant? Are they useful? Probably not. But they programmed you to think that way. And so once you are in, then you can sell them all these things. But if they don't even open the app, then where are you going to go? So they, they look at behavior differently than us. And we need to 
also understand that perspective. And the second part of it is the variable reward. So when my patients tell me, uh, I get these notifications for loot boxes and what happens is I click on it and then, you know, I have to pay, I don't know, $25 worth of points for that and I pay that and it may or may not have the, the weapons upgrade or the avatar upgrade that I want. But just that because I have this array of 100 avatars that I don't care, don't don't use, and then maybe one next week or the week after, I'll get the avatar that I really, really want. So that's kind of how you keep chasing that variable reward. And that's how it's becoming like GAM mm, because you're paying real money into it. Yeah, I mean, that's not even, that's not limited to um, online gaming too because uh, like games like uh, Magic the Gathering, that's exactly what they do too. You buy these boxes of cards hoping that there'll be a high value card buried somewhere in the set you know and then it's it's fascinating it's a whole nother world yeah that that just reminds me of harry potter it sounds like you keep ending up with dumbledore every time you buy a chocolate frog (laughs) oh i (laughs) love it oh yes harry potter reference for the win so gaming disorder is is the same concept as gambling disorder or as you said at the very beginning process disorders in general where you have compulsive use use with negative consequences you know etc right so that's kind of how we define gaming disorder because i think you mentioned this how how do parents or how do people decide if they have a gaming disorder or if they're just indulging in gaming well, and then what exclusions do you use too? There are a couple, like, because you, you talked about mood disorders, gambling as well, because with bipolar, and then there's some other things, criteria that you would exclude, right? Yes. So hazardous gaming is the one thing that is excluded from this criteria. Explain that to like our listeners. So hazardous gaming is is considered like separate from just gaming disorder and also bipolar 1 and bipolar type 2. So hazardous gaming gaming is this thought based on some case reports because you know again VR and the Vs as far as uh, Having a proper way of documenting or assessing this, although we are going to see much more um, work come out in the coming years, so it's very exciting. So this idea that you are so addicted to gaming and suppose you are, I don't know, an ICU physician, but you are not looking at your patients, you're not watching their telemetry and you are just gaming, 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 and that somebody has an adverse event because you were not present in your role. So that's hazardous gaming. It's very risky behavior. When gaming is a part of, say, an episode of mania, then you won't call it as a, as a gaming disorder. You will call it mania. And so does, this is true for people who use their phones compulsively or who have intimate addiction via their mobile device who like can't put it down while they're driving, for example. That would be an example of hazardous. I mean, obviously it's hazardous because you're driving, but is that similar or are you talking purely about just no, gaming? gaming. Uh, problematic internet use is not even defined as an addiction as yet. It just is problematic internet use. Okay. Oh, interesting. So okay. that's a that's a different because you know it's not just conceptualizing it, but like if is it replicated in studies and how far and how has it made progress to be like legit yet? No. <laughs> wow. So for gaming, uh, what resources are there for for people who meet the criteria and where they truly are having adverse consequences? 
in their life? So again, uh, a lot of this work is going to be outside of traditional medicine or usual medicine. Okay. So any person calling any rehab saying, Hey, I have a problem with uh, gaming or internet use. They are basically going to say, it's not a substance. We don't treat it here. You know, come back when you have a real addiction. So there's also like this idea of being condescending towards it. Like, Oh, it's not alcohol. And you know, our patients will report like if they go to X versus Y 12-step program, one over the other, they will be treated differently. It's kind of similar to that. Like it's not, what is that? That's not even real. We don't do that stuff here. We do real addictions here. And that is such a put off for patients. How would I put it? It doesn't matter how others perceive what you're going through. Your pain is real and you should be able to get help. That's true. And if it's affecting you, even the severity doesn't really matter, right? It's, it's how it affects you. That's I love that. That's really important. Yeah. So there's always this uh, race about, no, 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 my, my story is worse or my story is better or my story is more glorious. It's not about that. It's about even if it is just a problem, maybe it's not even an addiction. I want to live better. I want to live a better fulfilled life. I want to have a better lifestyle and I want to, you know, use my body to the to the best capacity, use my life to the best capacity. I think that's all, what we are all going. Yes. I mean amazing. Yes. And do you have patients um Dr. Canabar who present to you at on that kind of level of intensity where they're like, look, this is kind of a problem or is this more detected by you because you're an astute physician and understand this problem and you question um, it in your folks? So again, I work in a traditional sort of rehab setting. So it's more of a little bit more of me being nosy. Okay, fine. That You're allowed to do that. Obviously, that's your job to know everything. I, I've Because you find that people will hide process addictions more than substance addictions because there's even more shame. Maybe, maybe not actually. I think that's actually a better way. Process addictions are actually a better way of talking about addiction in general. It's way more accepted socially. Like, oh yeah, I'm hooked to my phone. Isn't everybody? Of course, everybody oh, is true. like, uh, you know, shopping, like I'm, I'm addicted to shopping and kind of laughing it off. Shopping. No, people don't because it really hurts their their bank account. So people don't laugh about the shopping. People do laugh about being on the phone all the time because that's not costing you any money yet. <laughs> mm. At least not that you are cognizantly aware of. So what about patients who want to get help with the gaming? So, yes, they could approach any of us as addiction doctors. And if you're you know, if your team of therapists is happy to deal with this, which my team is, um, and we we help patients just with simple, you know, harm reduction setting. This there's this whole idea that uh, all of us want to do is like, oh, whatever whatever happens, I'm just going to throw it away, or I'm going to throw the phone away. And especially when you're dealing with younger. I guess teens or young adults, I think harm reduction is the way to go. This fascination of abstinence, we need to leave it aside. You just start with harm reduction. You start the conversation. You don't overload like, I, I need to do all of this at once. And you see how things are going. If it is just problematic use, it will decrease. If it is a emerging as an addiction or it's like, no, we are try- setting these things and it's not helping, you know, you know, our boundaries are not working. Then you look at other resources. So generally, there are more 12 steps that are starting around problematic internet use. And then there are these so-called almost like summer camp sort of internet use rehabs that we see more in the West Coast, probably, probably the northern uh, part of the country that have started coming up and uh, they are quite expensive. So they really are for the more 
yeah, elite population to access. And this is commonly parents sending their kids who they're just exasperated with their their gaming use, their gaming activity or internet preoccupation. Right. Or if say they are gaming and they are in, I don't know, forty thousand dollars in debt because they use somebody's credit card to buy all of those loot boxes. Oh yikes. Do you ever use medication with gaming addiction again you could use the same medicines as gambling right you could use your ssris at high doses make sure that you are you are in contact with the psychiatry team make sure you know you're looking definitely for uh, other issues you know you may see a, a big a bigger relation with like very depressed mood. So you need to be very, very on the ball with this. You may need more medicines for the depression rather than just for the for the gaming itself. And uh, there's some evidence to show similar uh, medicines can help, whether it is, uh, you know, bupropion, um, escitalopram, other SSRIs. Um, there might also be some role of naltrexone as we go further in our um, research. Do you use um, topiramate? I like topiramate. Me too. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's very, very interesting because sometimes these behaviors also sort of go hand in hand with uh, some uh, some food behaviors. Maybe you are just grazing through the day. Maybe you are gaming and grazing or not even getting up to eat or whatever, or you have a binge pattern of eating. And topiramate as well as naltrexone can help in that. Great. And so what about problematic internet use or phone use? How tell us a little bit about the what's behind that and how how we're seeing this play out and and what are the barriers for people to reduce their use and is it the same concept of harm reduction which I love by the way that's really great. I'm going to adopt that. Uh so similar concepts and again we don't have a specific definition, you know, uh the studies whether it is just you know, physical studies, whether it's theoretical studies, population studies have not reached to a place where we can call it internet addiction. There is a internet addiction severity scale, addiction severity scale, uh, that still needs to be validated further. So there are these um, instruments for measuring the problem that are available that need to be studied across different populations, different uh, um, ethnic groups, so to speak, to see if they're valid. And maybe we'll start seeing it more in the future. What is causing that? So again, we learn more from the people who make technology and we are always playing catch up. So there is this concept of the hook. It's basically a variable reward hook. So you maybe somebody sends you, tells you, oh, how come you are not on Facebook? Everybody's on Facebook. You should join. And you go ahead and join Facebook and you create an account. So you're putting some um, some of your uh, identity, you're putting some of your thoughts in that app. And then you see, and there's nothing much to do and you maybe just leave. Or maybe you see that, oh, everybody from your high school is there. Maybe you should friend them or not. And then you see everybody's posting a picture. Then you say, okay, fine, I will also post my picture. The next thing you know, you're checking the app 500 times in the next three days to see if anybody liked it. And then you're like, oh, only two people like this picture. Maybe I need to put a more well-made up picture. Maybe I need to use filters or something. Post again and you see. And then eventually you're like, oh, now this time I got 20 likes. Maybe I, I can do this app. Let me ask some more people to join this app 
So I let me build my community inside this universe so that I get more likes in the future. So now you are totally enrolled into the program. What's the name of the movie that was very popular like a year or two ago, social media and how it reads us and... Yeah, Social Dilemma. Social Dilemma. Oh my God, that was so good and so terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's my mentor, Dr. Lemke. That's right, Anna Lemke. That's right, of course. Yeah, she is fabulous. Like I can, uh, very, very blessed to be like her only fellow at that time and uh, to work work with her and learn from her. That's kind of where also I got interested in process addictions because generally if you do an addiction medicine fellowship, you don't, you don't get this. You don't get this exposure. You don't get this training. For some reason at Stanford, we used to see patients with uh, process addiction or co-occurring process addiction. All right. So what do we do about smartphone hooks? How do we unhook? How do we deal with that? I think that relates to far more of us than say gambling addiction, which is 1% of the population and gaming disorder, which certainly affects lots of people. But smartphone hooking, what what's the future of this and how do we manage it? So this is uh, very interesting because I keep playing with different apps to understand them. So you have to, at some point, step back from the app and realize what it's doing to you. So there is this concept in... Uh in yoga and in like Eastern philosophy or Indian philosophy in general, is that your appetite or your intake is not just what you eat or drink. It is what you see, it is what you hear, it's what you read, and also what you're also putting back out. So when you take that bigger, wholesome view, you probably will not buy it, but just sit with that idea and observe yourself for the next few months. And then see, like if in a social conversation, are you are you becoming more relating more to the things that you're reading online and thinking them to be true? Or are you able to keep your options open? Like I could probably be this way or that way. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, you know, social some of the social media will want you to be very single channel TV. I'm going to talk about this, 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 this all day long and depends on whom you follow, what you follow. So this is more like, like a qualitative overview. That's one thing. So de develop some, give yourself some mindful space and be compassionate about yourself. It's okay. Every, you know, these things are supposed to program you in a certain way. Just recognize that programming at some level. Secondly, uh, when you post something, and you might have to post whether it's like, you know, your business, your job, whatever it is. You might have to interact with social media in some way. Make sure that you are not attaching yourself to the reward. I mean, everybody likes to see those likes or shares or retweets or quote tweets, whatever you call it. Mentally or emotionally, rather. Emotionally distance yourself whether you get a like or a dislike or whatever that may be. Third would be there will always be this thing that at some point, maybe one year, two years, three years, four years, you will understand what the app is actually wanting you to do to get famous, to get, I don't know, 5 million followers or whatever. And this is becoming very relevant in today's day and life and we'll get to that. So to be relevant, to have, I don't know, a blue tick or a verified badge, I need to create this kind of content to be popular. Take a step back. Like, do you really want to do that? Is this really your day job? And maybe yes, maybe no. And be okay with what your answer is. Now, that's quite profound. This concept of consumption of like, 
it's not only what you put in, it's everything that you're taking in is what you become and, and compare it or contrast it to what you really want to be. That's really meaningful. And sometimes it can be something really hilarious. So like, for example, I've been on Twitter for like three years now. And I just, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to play Game of Thrones with that app. And that app wants me to be on Game of Thrones. Is that what I feel like? So I have to be, have a burning desire to be a mouthpiece about something or be offensive about something. And that's the way to get likes or retweets. And I'm like, that's not me. And I don't want to do that. So then uh, recently I started like using Instagram and then I loved it. Like I enjoyed it. It's like the happy app where, where Twitter is like the I'm always upset about something app. Instagram is like the happy app for me. And like what, what purpose is that going to serve other than likes? And the, it, is that your brand? Is that who you really are? May you, your brand may be something else, but is that who you really are? Is that an accurate description? So that's just for, you know, just regular Luddites like, like me who are interacting with these apps. So now those who are continuously on their phones or, you know, spending 12, 13, 14 hours a day, it's a serious problem because what happens when we switch off our phones and keep them aside after doing 14 hours a day of being on the phone, you feel really, really low. You feel really sad. And that's big problem so that's why i say don't go to complete abstinence you know set boundaries set harm reduction boundaries so like from 10 to 12 i have i don't know the most clients or i'm working at i'm a receptionist at this office so from 10 to 12 we get the most walk-ins and i check them in for their appointments whatever so at that time i'm not going to use my phone or from six to eight in the evening, I am making dinner. I'm spending time with my family. I'm eating, eating with my family. We are having meaningful conversations. We are going to leave the phones aside. So you start with simple, basic boundaries. Uh, another option would be like, you know, keep the phone in a different room when you go to sleep. That's the hardest. That is the way hardest because everybody has this idea like I'm going to read myself to sleep. A lot of our content for books is going to be online. You know, you could do some small things like switch it to a dark mode or, you know, that's not very problematic for your eyes, but the best option is to switch to a physical book from the library. Well, what else have we missed about process addictions that we need to talk about uh, before we wrap up? I think the best thing I would say is, you know, take brain breaks. And uh, I just like doing that. So, you know, whether it is work and a lot of us are working from home, work almost doesn't end. Uh, what is a time that you totally get to detox your brain? And for me, it is my gardening, like no phones over there, except when like I want to take pictures of something that's growing really well. Other than that, you know, phone is not something I need. So just uh, digging the earth, planting something new, watching it grow, watering it whatever it is that you are reconnecting with nature in some way. So for some of my friends, it is like going hiking or going for a run and just do that. Like don't do five other things along with it because we have this idea of, oh, we need to, I'm trying to uh, translate this word, but unfortunately I'm not finding a good word for it. We, we need to like get the most out of this time. Like, you know, like I want to get what I pay for. So within one hour, if I'm gardening, I also want to listen to four YouTube videos and uh, then garden. Then, then your brain is not getting a break. I'm sorry. Stop multitasking. Yeah. Stop multitasking uh, from a, a idea of like you're putting 
it's almost like I'm paying some for a service. I need to get the most of that service available. We are treating our time that same way. Like the Bombay word for it is Vasul. Like you don't need to do that. You just do one thing and that's okay. And give yourself that permission that you don't do five things. That Yeah. So like, for example, if you're going for a walk, look at the birds, look at the trees, look at the falling leaves, look at the colors. The colors are so awesome right now. I love it. So brain breaks and uh, more simplicity, being aware of what you consume. And then what I've heard from you today as well is there's clearly people who have significant consequences from uh, process addictions or problematic use and they need there's help available and there are things that people can do especially from a harm reductionist approach okay one last question for me anyway before darlene has any questions does a harm reduction approach work with gambling or is gambling something that you typically advise people to completely abstain from if they've had problematic um, use with i would say like with any other addiction you just work with what you have you start with a goal whether it is addiction or uh, I mean, abstinence or harm reduction and see where it goes. It depends on what the patient is ready for. I love it. I think that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Canabar. That was just a wealth of information. I learned so much. Thank you so much for having me. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosting guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.